Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Brady, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke. We'll be in chapter 20, or chapter 8. Sorry, I didn't skip ahead. Fast-tracked, chapter 22. We're getting through this thing. We're going to do it all today, chapter 8 through 22. What do you guys think? Uh, Chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Uh, My name's Cameron, and I'm one of the pastors here at CTK. If I uh, haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I would love to, Uh, but I uh, count this as my greeting to you right now, and I hope to connect with you after the gathering. Uh, But we'll be continuing this this study in Luke here uh, with the second of four miracles. Sounds super loud in here, doesn't it? Seems kind of loud. Is it really loud, or is that just me? Okay. Really loud? I'll try not to yell. How about that? If I yell, we'll have some bleeding ears in here. All right, I'll, I'll keep it low. Uh, but Luke chapter 8, uh, continuing on in this, in this kind of series of, of, of four passages where we see uh, Jesus' miracle working power. And uh, as I was thinking on this passage this week, I was actually at a, at a trivia night with some friends earlier this week. Shout out to these guys. Hey, they're all in here. Uh, we won, carried home a trophy. Uh, we, but uh, this, I, this show came up, and this, it's a show I haven't thought about in a long time uh, because I don't have cable, and I haven't for like, I don't know, eight years. That's not like a spiritual flex. I just like, I, I, waste, I waste plenty of time in other ways. It's just not, it's just not the way that I waste time. Uh, so I, I, this show came up, and I was like, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Now, that's a show that I haven't thought of in a while. And uh, I think that show is so funny. And as I got to thinking about it, uh, I, I, you know, there's, there's shows, all, ki- like, all kinds of shows just like this. Uh, there's like, HGTV and TLC and all these different uh, kinds of networks that do these shows like this. And it's kind of funny. You know, you look at these. It's so predictable. Right? There's nothing surprising. It's the same show that they've been doing for 15 years. There's a formula. They just you know, kind of rinse and repeat every single time. And all throughout this show, you know, they're, they're going about building up the suspense, looking at all the ups and downs that they experience along the way, these blown budgets, surprise problems, disagreements, only to find that silver lining where they settle on exactly the design that they want to have, all to heighten that sense of anticipation that you feel at that final scene when all the family and friends are gathered around and they're waiting with eager anticipation and they all chant what? Move that bus. And they get to see this incredible transformation of their home that they, that they remembered as one way and they see something quite different. Now, I know that's kind of a funny illustration, but uh, there's a reason that stories like that uh, stand out to us, which is with as much significance as they do. There's a reason uh, that these kinds of things are popular and successful. Uh, There's power in story, and particularly particularly there's power in stories that cause us to imagine how transformation might be possible in our own lives. Whether we dream of having a beautiful home, the right career, the perfect body, success uh, in our education, seeking accomplishments there, having the idyllic home life and family, we're drawn to these stories with a before and after because they teach us to imagine that transformation to these ends might just be possible for us. That's quite a drug for people who want to see the broken parts of their lives become beautiful. 
And in Luke chapter 8, we find, like I said, these four stories of Jesus performing these miracles. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Jesus calmed the storm with with just a word, and by the strength and his power, uh, he was able to settle these these stormy waters and and quiet the storm. And and next week, we'll look at how Jesus miraculously heals this woman so nonchalantly on his way to raise a young girl from the dead. And then the week after that, we'll see how Jesus would feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. Having only the food to feed a few, he feeds the many. And all these miracles are kind of happening right here. And this week, right in the middle of that, we see this story of Jesus encountering a man who is possessed by demons, but who experiences the transforming power of Jesus. That's the miracle. This man who's possessed by many, the many people experiences the transforming power of Jesus and his life is completely changed such that he's not the same as he once was. And what I would suggest to you uh, this morning is that this transformation story, although spectacular, is not unique. Uh, rather, I, I, I think that this story exemplifies what the transforming power of Jesus can and should look like in any of our lives, any of us who know Christ. So following this narrative of this demon-possessed man who meets Jesus, experiences his transforming power, and then is sent to tell his neighbors the good news, I would like us to see this very simple idea here in this text that the call of Christians is to experience and proclaim the transforming power of Jesus. So let's look, we'll walk through this passage together. I want to look first at this experience with the transforming power of Jesus, starting in verse 26. Let's read it together. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So Jesus is going along this journey, and it says he sails across the Sea of Galilee. And what that means, your your translations uh, might say a few different things or different names about what that area is. Uh, What what we see is that that is is a name for an area that is predominantly uh, Gentiles. And the point is, when, when we see this highlighted in the narrative, is that Jesus is now going to this territory to meet people who were far off from him. People like this man. And Luke's gospel, I think, leaves out some of the gritty details. There's a reason, but leaves out some of the gritty details that I think Mark uh, helps us to fill in. But understand uh, that this is a rather shocking scene. This man's appearance is alarming. He's naked. He's loud. He's bloodied from self-harm. He's so apparently not in his right mind. Verse 27 said that that he was living not in a house but among the tombs which were likely on a cliffside near this area uh, next to the sea but far away from the city. You see, understand that this man was so ostracized from society, so on the fringes of the people that he knew and left to wallow out there in his own misery that he might as well have been dead. He certainly was to the people that had left him there. But as Luke often reminds us, it is exactly these people for whom Jesus came. 
Remember in Luke 19.10, Jesus said that he has come to seek and to save the lost. He knew that it was the healthy who needed a doctor, not the healthy who needed a doctor, but the sick. In Luke 5.31, this man who was deemed unworthy of love and dignity and care by his neighbors was shown a great mercy by his Savior. Friends, let that be an encouragement to our souls. There is none who are too far for God's grace to reach. He has mercy on unworthy sinners like us, not because of anything that we have done, not because we are impressive or have a leg to stand on, but because of his grace, which he has lavished on us, it says in Ephesians chapter one, that he delights to give. That's exactly what happens here in verse 28. We pick up, it says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to uh, command them to depart into the abyss. Now, I don't know if it's right to categorize uh, degrees of severity of a demon possession. It's all pretty bad, right? But I would say if we're categorizing the severity of this demon possession, this one is rather severe, He's possessed by a multitude of demons for what appears to have been maybe on and off for a long period of time. And when Jesus asks his name, uh, one, one demon speaks for the rest, maybe like a spokesperson or something like that. And the name that he answers with is actually a number. He says, Legion. Now that word would have been used to refer to a large platoon in the Roman army consisting of 6,000 men. Now, whether or not this was uh, literal, and and he literally meant that he represented 6,000 demons uh, speaking for him that had plagued this man, the point is the same, that these demons had come into his life and were wreaking havoc. Verse 29 says that, that when people saw what was going on in his life, these physical manifestations of his possession, it says that he was kept under guard in chains, but he, was, he would break through the bonds of those chains and be driven out into the wilderness to deal with his affliction alone. But here's what's really important for us to see in this passage. Note the authority that Jesus has that the demons recognized and answered to. You see, these demons who exercise so much power and control in this man's life, These demons who couldn't be contained by chains and shackles. These demons who caused these issues in this man's life that no one could deal with, that no one had a category for. When they came up against Jesus, son of the most high God, they had no choice but to beg not to be conquered themselves. Now I want us to see that this is such a monumental truth, not only in this passage, but for our own lives. Jesus And Jesus alone has the authority and power to bring about transformation in our lives. And friends, this is good news for sinners like you and me because the Bible teaches us that there is a war being waged and this war is being waged for our souls and it is a war that our flesh is just no match for. 
Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friend, that's, friends, that's a reality for us, but hear this truth and know it down deep. Our Savior is powerful and victorious over all of our enemies, and the good news is that his victory and his power has become our victory and our power. Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, see, Christ alone is our deliverance from evil. He alone is the victor over the world, our flesh, and the devil. See that this goodness of the gospel is for you. The freedom and power that this man would soon walk in is the freedom and power that is yours in Christ. And we see that here in verse 32. It says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Friends, it's because of the power and authority of Jesus that he was able to save this man's soul from the evil forces that had held him captive for many years, the plagues that have, have confounded all the people around him, that nothing that they had in their life or in the power of their flesh had any match for. Jesus was able to save this man's soul with just a command of these demons, and they fleed. But as we look at this story, I, I, want us to, I want to remind us again that this isn't just a story of an exorcism that happened some 2,000 odd years ago in this man's life. As, as wonderful and miraculous and true as that is, and praise God that that is who our Savior is and that is how he was in this situation. I want us to see how this story exemplifies the salvation and freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. It shows us how this power that Jesus used to, that he used to cast out these demons is the power that lives and works among us. That is the power of Christ through and in us and in our lives. And I want us to see and rest on how that is true. Because something I'm aware of this morning is that every single person here has faced temptation to sin and has failed probably recently. Am I right? We don't have to raise hands, right? Every single one of us have been, have been walking through this. Every one of us is laboring to walk with Jesus faithfully, but in our lives we experience so many ups and downs, and what we need in our lives is not a better effort of the flesh to transform us and to make us better. What we need is the transforming power of Jesus at work in us, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our work, as we share the gospel with our family and friends and neighbors, as we labor to be good friends, fellow church members, we don't need the best tips and tricks for how to be successful in these things. What we need is a transformation of the inner self, Christ's power working in us. But I know, and I'm aware, as I'm sure many of us are, that that sense of freedom that we have in Christ from our sin the sense of power and presence often feels 
so elusive, does it not? Oftentimes, this this idea of seeing God's miracle-working power at work in these people's lives kind of has this effect of, of, of almost kind of raising the bar of this sense of dissonance that we feel between the reality that we see in these pages and the reality that we experience in our lives. It feels so elusive sometimes. So then what practically does it look like to see this, to know this, and to walk in an experience this day by day. What does it look like to experience the transforming power of Christ in our lives, not one time and for eternity, but every single day, day by day, walking with him, working in and living in his power and strength in us? I don't have all the answers, but I do want to give just a simple application. And I want to consider very simply what it looks like for us to experience the transforming power of Jesus by starting with the gospel and continuing in the gospel. We experience the transforming power of Jesus by starting with the gospel and continuing in the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. We, we start with the gospel when we recognize this reality that is gloriously true for our lives and we, and we live it in such a way that we know it and has impact on our lives. We start from a place of knowing down deep in our souls that we are fully loved and fully known and fully accepted in Christ, not because of any merit within ourselves, but because of his death on the cross, which has offered forgiveness of our sins He died in our place and placed his perfection on us. He freed us from our bondage to sin and empowered us by his spirit to walk in his ways. That feels sometimes so foreign to our lives, does it not? If we're really honest, we hear these glorious truths and we say, why does that feel so far? Why do I not sense that that is true? Why do I know that these stories, these propositional truths about this son of God, the savior Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross because he loves me and he he has placed his perfection on me through his bloodshed. He has, when God sees me, he sees the perfection of Christ. Why is my life awash in guilt and shame? Why do I feel helpless and powerless against my sin and temptation? Why is this my experience when this glorious reality is mine in Christ? It's because even though this is true, we know that we fail often. We know that in our flesh, though we know Christ, though we are walking with him, though we are transformed in the inner person, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, when we face temptation, we often fail. And it compounds all of these senses that seem to create so much dissonance between our lived experience and what we see and know to be true in the scriptures. But church, I want you to hear this and be encouraged by it. When we fail, when we fall short, when temptation comes our way and we give in, when we are dragged away and enticed because of the, our sin nature that still rears its head at work in our heart, yes, we need to take seriously our offense before God and recognize the brokenness and wreckage that that sin creates in our lives. We need to see and know and be aware of that. But as we see and know and grow in our awareness of that church, We need to be all the more aware and reminded of his sufficient grace for us. That there is more mercy in Christ 
than sin in us, as one saint has said before. And here's why I think that that's so important. Here's why it's so important that we start with the gospel when we see this at work in our life, when we see our hearts wonder, when we see sin creep up, when we are longing to see the transforming power of Jesus at work in us and in our flesh, transforming our lives around us. This is why it's so important that in our failures, which we will have daily and often, here's why it's so important that we start with the gospel. Because the gospel we preach to ourselves and our failures is often the loudest and most formative gospel we will ever hear. The gospel we preach to ourselves and our failures is the loudest and most formative gospel we will ever hear. Here's why. If in our sin we believe the lie that the answer is within ourselves and that we need only try hard and do better, It at least gives us an enemy to blame, which is ourselves. But that leads us no nearer to the freedom and power that is ours in Jesus. Instead, friends, we need to, in our sin and in our failures, in the ups and downs, whatever seasons of life, however his grace is at work in us, when we falter and when we succeed, we need to be rooted in the good news of his grace for undeserving sinners like ourselves. We need to be confident that he will bring that work of grace to completion, as it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, because what we believe to be true about who Jesus is and his grace at work in our lives will transform everything about the way that we live. And it's on that firm foundation of starting with the gospel, reminding ourselves, preaching this truth to ourselves that we likewise continue in the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we press on, not starting from a place of beginning in the gospel and then continuing that work in the flesh, but starting down deep, rooted in the reality and truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ for us and that we continue to press on in our lives day by day in the strength and power of Christ and not in an effort of our flesh. Our best efforts to fight our sin, to fight our temptation, to make ourselves look like Jesus are no better than the chains and shackles that broke trying to hold this man in place. All of our efforts to change ourselves and to change our lives and to seek transformation that come from the flesh are efforts that happen in vain. They're worthless. They do nothing for us. We don't need greater effort. We don't need uh, maximized efficiency. We don't need the best tips and tricks on how to become a better husband or wife or mother or father or son or daughter or friend or worker or anything like that. We need to abide in Christ. We need to be rooted in Christ. That's exactly what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 15. He is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we cannot produce fruit. That is what it looks like in our life to be connected to the nearness and experience the transforming power of Christ day by day. It looks like the daily discipline of walking with and abiding in Christ. Now I want to say this just practically. What does it actually look like to do that? Out of curiosity this week, I Googled, and I was like, I'm going to find an answer. 
how do I live in the power of Christ? That was one thing I Googled. And I wanted to see who had an answer. And then I asked the question, uh, how do I live in the spirit? Because that was usually what, how do you get the power of Christ? Well, you live in the spirit. I was like, okay, next rabbit trail. How do you live by the spirit? Anybody ever Googled something like that? Want to raise a show of hands? Like this thing that we rehearse and say often and we say, yeah, abide with Christ. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'll do that. Live in the spirit. Yeah, that sounds great. I want to live in the spirit, not in my flesh. That's awesome. How do I do that? What does that actually look like? I see the imagery in this metaphor that really comes to life, that Jesus is the vine and I am the branches and I need to be connected with him. I need to be walking with him, experiencing fellowship with him. I see how that's true. Practically, how does that come to bear in my life and how does that lead to the transforming power of Jesus at work in me? J.C. Ryle, I think, says it very simply. This is his definition for what it looks like to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ means to keep a habit of close communion with him. To always be leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength. As our chief companion and best friend, to have his words abiding in us, and to make them a guide for our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. If you want to experience this transforming power of Jesus day by day, this transforming power of Jesus that brought your dead heart to life when he called you to himself, if you want to continue walking in that day by day, it doesn't happen by happenstance. It happens through a daily discipline to cultivate on a dependence on and nearness to Jesus. And so here by way of application, I would just ask you to look at your heart and ask does this description sound like your life? Does that really sound like your life? Are you keeping a habit of constant close communion with Jesus? Leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out your heart to him, using him as the fountain of life and strength, as chief companion and best friend, to have his words abiding in you down deep, and make them a guide for your actions and inform the way that you live. Now, I don't think that as we seek, there's often times in our life when, we, when that experience doesn't quite match our actions. We might be trying to seek after Christ and trying to walk with him faithfully, and somehow that disconnect we still experience. But I want us to understand this reality that, that the transforming power of Christ is not only a possibility, but a present reality for those who abide in him. Our actions can't guarantee that outcome that if we seek after him, that we won't still fail, that we won't still try to do things in our own strength, that we won't still try to do things in our flesh, but we can be confident that if we don't seek after him and don't seek to abide in him, then by no means will we ever be walking with him. By no means will we ever be living in his strength and power. It is really that simple. Abide in Christ. That's what it looks like to continue experiencing his transforming power day by day. But we see also that this man not only experienced the transforming power of Jesus in his life, but he was sent to proclaim that transforming power to his neighbors and to his city. Look with me in verses 34 through 39. It says this, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled 
and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. See, all these elements that were present here, he's naked, he's out of his mind, he's, he's wild and crazy, now subdued, sitting at the feet of Jesus, not falling before him in fear and trembling, but sitting at his feet in humility, experiencing his grace, clothed and in his right mind. And what was the response? They were afraid. And those people who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city exactly that, how much Jesus had done for him. The last thing I want to highlight from this passage is a reality that I think is for all of us. That this man who had experienced the transforming power of Jesus is sent to proclaim that good news of Christ to others. I don't want to overcomplicate this, so I won't. This is the most basic formula for discipleship in the Bible. Someone meets Jesus They come to know him, they come to follow him, they hear and respond to the gospel, and then they live as people sent to proclaim that gospel to others. It is not more complicated than that. Don't miss, though, the simple yet profound reality that proclaiming the gospel as a, a vocation for our lives is knit into the very DNA of what it means to be a Christ follower. Church, I want us to be compelled by this vision in its simplicity. When we answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? So many things come to mind. So many conversations and avenues that we could go down. So many different things that we say about what does the Christian do? How does the Christian engage with the world? How does the Christian engage with the culture? Should we even engage with the culture? Should we even engage with the world? Should we move out to the desert and build a compound? Should we, what should we do? How do we handle this? What do we do in all of these things? Let's not complicate it because it isn't complicated. The Bible is so abundantly clear and we need to be compelled by this vision that those who have experienced the transforming power of Jesus who have been changed by the gospel are the very people that God is using to spread that gospel to the ends of the earth. There's no sense in which that is an optional add-on feature for our lives or for our church or for the broader church or for any Christian in any place in the world. It is fundamental to who we are that we are a people who are sent to the cities, sent to our neighbors, and sent to the ends of the earth to proclaim the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be compelled by the simplicity of this vision because I think it is simple and beautiful and right. Jesus isn't preparing ideologues to win arguments. He isn't raising up social activists to change the world or political pundits to change your mind. He is first and foremost creating a people who will be his witnesses of his grace and power first in their own lives and then through their words. That is the reality of what it means to walk with Christ. 
Like this man who shared how much Jesus had done for him, it says in verse 39, it's so simple. We too are called to boldly proclaim that gospel in our lives and in our words. Being able and not unable to point to ourselves is the first example among any of what it looks like for a sinner to be saved by the grace of God and transformed to look like Jesus more next, the next day after day after day after day. To point to ourselves is an example of how the grace and power of Jesus transforms a person. And I think that invites introspection for us in a couple of really key ways. The first one is this. Is the transforming power of Jesus evident in your life right now? Is the transforming power of Jesus evident in your life right now? The people who are around you, the people you work with, fellow Christians, your wife or your husband, they probably know the most. Start with them. Your children. Do people see in you and experience what a transformation in the power of Jesus Christ actually looks like? When people see you, are they nearer to the gospel of Jesus Christ or further away is maybe a simple way to think about that trajectory. Do you see Christ-like fruit in your attitudes, your actions, your speech, and how you spend your time and money? And I want us to ask this question and ask this introspective question of ourselves because when we talk about uh, being a witness for the gospel, we talk about sharing the gospel with those around us, so often that conversation morphs into just some practical tips about how to uh, evangelize our neighbors and share the gospel, how to use the EvangelCube just right and not get them mixed up, how to use these gospel tracks, maybe some common questions that we answer. It turns into this very tactical conversation about how to win an argument. By a show of hands, how many of you were argued into following Christ? Thought so. None of us. Not a single one of us. So often this conversation shifts into this this kind of ideological debate of ideas and trying to win over the mind and imagination. Our words matter and our words have to be there. We have to proclaim the gospel in its fullness and in his truth. That is absolutely true. But the first witness of the gospel that often people will see and matters quite a lot for our witness to the world is the gospel that they see in you and in your life. God isn't calling us to be living theology textbooks or how-to guides for to share the gospel who have all the right propositional truths and answers that have absolutely no bearing on our life. He is building a witness among us a witness by which people can see and know his grace and power on full display. A witness where people see the truth and beauty and goodness of God. But I think it calls us to even a simpler level of introspection than that. Are you proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in words? Is this a conversation that you are actually having? I'm gonna start here and just lay my cards on the table. Uh, I've been feeling convicted about this for like a solid month uh, as I look at my life and look at my surroundings and say, man, am I really trying to cultivate uh, not even those conversations, but opportunities for those conversations to happen? Am I taking advantage of the ones that are right in front of me? 
But it's worth asking and being really honest with ourselves, are we actually proclaiming the gospel in our words to those who need to hear? Do our lives model the trajectory for discipleship that we see in this person, that we aren't just a people who are experiencing the grace of Jesus and living as this transformed community and know him so well, but that we are boldly proclaiming that to those who need to hear? Are we doing that in our words regularly and faithfully? Uh, George Barna, you may know Barna from the people that do statistics about the church. Um, He famously said, I think it was back in actually 1988, and the statistic has worsened. I don't know comparatively to what, but he famously said in 1998, the average Christian in America today will die without ever having shared his faith in Christ. The average Christian will die that grows up in America, this is us, the people around us will grow up and die without ever having shared their faith in Jesus Christ with a single other person. I'm convicted by this, personally in my own life. Because when I see this story of transformation and I see this person live sent to proclaim this transformation and grace and power of Jesus to his neighbors and to his city, that conviction registers on a deep level in my heart. Because I think for a people and for a person, let me just start with me, for a person who is called by God to be a witness. How can this true? How, how can this be true? How can this reality that most of our church and most people will never share their faith in Christ with another single person? If we really believe, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, it ought to mean something to me. It ought to mean something to us that we bear this at the level of conviction in a way that changes our attitude and posture. It changes the way we spend our money and time. It changes who we spend our time with. It changes how we posture ourselves in the places that God has sent us to. It changes the budget that our church spends and the way we allocate resources. It changes the ministries that we do and we take part in. This belief that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe that transforms the life of this man possessed with demons 2,000 years ago and is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and, and lives in us and is for anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. If we believe that that is true on an intellectual level, that should work its way down deep into our life and change our priorities, change our attitudes, change the way we live, change what we love, change everything about who we are. It should shape in us a desire to see people come to know the grace and power of Jesus just as we have ourselves. How can we hold this to ourselves? This is something, again, I'm being 100% transparent and clear. I'm actively asking God to do in my life. I'm asking God every single day to increase my drive and conviction to share the gospel. This shouldn't just be a part of my life or an optional feature. This should be a trajectory for my life. A whole trajectory for who I am. A person sent to proclaim his gospel where I am to the ends of the earth. I'm asking God to give me this conviction in my life. And here's my invitation to you. I want to ask you to pray that with me.
I want to ask you to pray that with me. This isn't a church program. This isn't like, okay, now we're launching this new initiative and we're going to call it this, I don't know, CTK Scent or something like that. There's no textbook guide or anything like that. I'm asking to start there and inviting you to start with me. Let's pray that God grows our conviction to see this not only be a sometimes feature of our life, but a whole trajectory such that when people look at us and people look at our church, they would first and foremost, above all these things, say, yes, they know God and love him and worship him and they have sweet fellowship and they are a people who boldly proclaim the gospel to those that need to hear it. Let that be true of our lives. Let that be true of our church. But this kind of resolve is crucial As we see in verse 37, it's not always going to work out. Despite having witnessed the grace and power of Jesus that that transformed this demon-possessed man's life, when the people from the surrounding areas came to see it, it says that they were afraid. And they were actually so afraid. You know, sometimes fear means reverent awe of God, right, in the scriptures. Uh, I don't think that's the fear that was going on here because they asked Jesus to leave. Like, get on your boat and go back to where you came from. Go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They sent him away. Sometimes that's true. We can't control the outcome of our evangelism. And sometimes that's scary. Sometimes that keeps us from boldly proclaiming. I understand that that's true. I've seen it be true in my life. God alone can move in the hearts and minds and lives of unbelievers to call them to himself. But what we can control is our faithfulness to the task of proclaiming his gospel. We can't change people's heart and we can't ultimately change people's minds which are blinded by Satan, bound and kept under chains, but we can control our faithfulness to the task. No guaranteed outcome, but I can control my faithfulness to the task. We can be resolved to not only faithfully walk in and see and experience and know the transforming power of Jesus, we can be faithful to the task of proclaiming it to anyone who would listen. This is the trajectory for the Christian life. This is what it looks like to experience the the magnitude of the transforming power of Jesus such that it changes our lives and teaches us to love and know and walk in the right ways, to know Jesus, to worship him, to walk with him daily. Yes, it is these things, but it is this transforming power of Jesus that compels us to go forward with the most compelling answer for a dying world, proclaiming this gospel that people might also come to see and know and walk with Christ themselves. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this is true for us. Posture our hearts in humility before you, God. Break us of any hardness of heart or apathy or laziness or anything that keeps us back. In the same way, Father, break us of a sense of hopelessness and despair that when we see these stories of this incredible magnitude of your transforming power absolutely changing the life of this man who was possessed by demons, Father, I pray that this not feel far from us. Father, this is the gospel for us. That you have freed us from our captivity You have broken the bondage that has held us as slavery to our flesh and a slavery to our sin. You have set us free 
that we might know you and walk in you. You've set us free to so many good and true and beautiful things, empowered us by your spirit to see and know them and walk in them. Father, we believe that that's true. Help that truth run down deep in our life in a way that matters. Father, we ask that that none of us feel far from this power of Christ. Father, what began in the flesh, as as the Apostle Paul questioned, may, may it be true that we ask with the same level of incredulity, how can it be perfected? What began in the spirit, how can it be perfected in the flesh? We know that this isn't true. This gospel that you have saved us into, called us into, is the same gospel we need to be rooted in day after day. Father, help us to abide in you. Give us the strength and power and resolve to be near to you, to pursue you, to have the discipline to walk daily with you, to have communion, sweet fellowship with you. Father, grant that to us because ultimately it is yours to grant But Father, we place ourselves in line and ask you to do that in us. And Father, we ask that we see that that trajectory does not end there. Father, you are building a witness among us that is true and beautiful and good because you are true and beautiful and good. You are building a witness among us, not with all the right answers and all the right propositional truth, but a witness where people can see and know that you are God and you are good, that you are glorious and that your gospel is powerful to transform lives because people see in us that reality coming to bear. And Father, we ask Send us with that compelling answer. Convict our hearts. Father, make this the trajectory of our lives. We long to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, we proclaim your kingdom come and your will be done. We proclaim this glorious gospel here where we are and to the ends of the earth, we pray. Do this work in us. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.